Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Criminal Gangs. Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening to everyone. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. First of all, I want to thank all the panellists. Uh, we have a a very exciting session ahead of us. We're going to be focused on uh, criminal gangs, organized crime, social behavior. So uh, we really have the best speakers here in our panel and uh, feel free who's ever joined afterwards to ask questions. Uh, we're going to do live presentations, live chats. So uh, we have 75 minutes for this uh, exciting uh, panel and hopefully everyone will enjoy. Um, I would like to give a short introduction of the panelists uh, today and uh, also about myself. My name is uh, Paul Friedberg. Uh, I'm actually working today in uh, Celebrite, which is a company dealing with digital forensics and digital intelligence. Um, I retired a year ago from the Israeli Ministry of Defense after 27 years in operational and management positions. So my background is uh, defense and international uh, defense cooperation. Um, with us today, we have uh, Mr. Andrew Miller. Uh, Andrew is an expert on uh, relations among criminal groups, police, uh, communities with a focus on United States and uh, Nigeria. Uh, Mr. Miller's research explores issues surrounding organized crime, policing and conflict. Uh, prior to joining, uh, prior to that, he was in the Naval Academy. Um, I'd like to emphasize that Mr. Andrew Miller holds a PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he was a member of the security study programs. Uh, I hope I got everything uh, wrapped up, uh, Andrew. If not, you'll take it uh, on your turn. Uh, of course, uh, we have uh, with us uh, Ms., uh, Mrs. Judy Ann. Siliers. Uh, good evening, Judy. Um, Judy is a, is a political ph 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 philosopher, researcher, and a communication manager at uh, Math Moms from South Africa. Math Moms is a woman initiative in Cape Town, South Africa, that builds confident communities on math empowered child at time. Uh, also, she's an ad hoc lecturer at the Stellenbosch University Philosophy Department and a freelance editor. So we really have, uh, we're really happy to have you on board, Judy. Um, also with us, uh, we have Mrs. Uh, Lynn Van Schalik. I hope I got your surname right, Lynn. If not, please uh, correct me. Van Skalkvik. Van Skalkvik, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Um, Liz Lynn is also in, uh, in South Africa. She's a researcher raised in the town of Stellenbosch. She holds a bachelor's degree arts in BA and law and the honors degree in philosophy from Stellenbosch University. In 2016, she graduated from Tiburg University in the Netherlands with an MA in victimology and criminal justice and currently is located in Belgium. So it's great to have you aboard also, Lynn. Um, not last, but uh, not, uh, not least, we have uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Amir Rostrami. I hope you got your, your surname right, Amir. Thank you for the thumbs up. 
Uh, Amir holds a PhD in uh, sociology from Stockholm University, as in, and, and currently he's an associate professor and a senior lecturer in criminology at the U University of Gavel Rostam, of Gavel. I hope I got that right. Uh, Dr. Rostami holds a rank of a police superintendent at the Swedish police and also served as a senior advisor to the Swedish National Coordinator of Safeguarding Democracy Against Violent Extreme. Um, so we have a really, I would say, the diverse uh, bunch of experts uh, this evening. And uh, without further ado, uh, I would like to get this uh, panel started. Um, so we'll start with uh, with Mr. Andrew Miller. Andrew, uh, the stage is yours. All right. Well, uh, thank you to the Global Initiative for organizing this incredible event. Uh, thank you, Paul, for the uh, for the introduction. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and jump right into it. So I'm going to be presenting about uh, police citizen cooperations in context where uh, there is there's significant criminal group violence. Uh, so many communities experience experiencing criminal group violence. I would say residents live in what I would term like vacuums of justice. Okay, and evidence of this is the fact that uh, roughly two thirds of homicides go unsolved in many American cities, uh, and this problem's uh, even more acute in 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 other parts of the world. Uh, so, for instance, in Mexico, uh, the authorities there fail to convict uh, perpetrators in in ninety five percent of homicide cases. Uh, and authorities fail to provide justice in part because they struggle to promote cooperation with citizens. Uh, so we see all that fancy investigative technology on, on in films, on television, that sort of thing, but still critical to identifying perpetrators, locating perpetrators, uh, then eventually convicting them uh, are, are, are witnesses themselves and information from, uh, from citizens themselves. Uh, so a Baltimore City uh, police detective uh, put it to me this way, uh, without a witness, uh, most of your violent crime cases aren't, aren't going anywhere. Uh, so the purpose of my presentation today is just to discuss like how might authorities and community safety advocates uh, encourage witnesses to, uh, to share information uh, in communities uh, with uh, significant criminal group, criminal group violence. Uh, so I'll go through uh, just the theory, uh, talk a little bit about my method where I tried to try to look at this question, uh, where I focus on, on Baltimore, Maryland. I'll go over the results. Uh, and then I also have an extension of the research in Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, and then finally, I'll wrap up with policy implications. The core of my theory, which I, I term cycles of silence. So the core of this theory um, is that criminal group violence generates two collective misperceptions that prevent cooperation. Uh, so I'd say that violence uh, makes retaliation appear more likely than it is. So even when violence isn't targeting cooperators, just by witnessing, say, uh, violence by one gang uh, towards another gang, that makes retaliation against cooperators uh, appear more likely than it is. And an analogy to this phenomenon is what we see with respect to terrorism, right? Um, uh, terrorism is shown to be, and a number of surveys show this, that people see terrorism as more likely than it is. 
uh, just because of the, it generates fear. So in the same way that ter terrorism generates fear, which inflates the perceived likelihood of it, uh, violence by criminal groups inflates the perceived likelihood of, of retaliation. Um, and in addition to that, this violence, this risk inflation, and, and, and both the real and the perceived risk here um, uh, forces those who might support cooperation with the police to keep that support private, right? Um, so that reduces the perceived cooperation norms in communities, right? And when there's a reduced perceived norm of something in a community, that means less people do it. Um, so that further reduces the likelihood of cooperation with the police. Uh, so just to kind of break this down a little bit, uh, this is the theory in a nutshell. I'm not going to go into all the, the nitty gritty detail here, um, but just to, to, to show it uh, as simply as possible, I'll say um, start with violence, right? So criminal group violence occurs. Um, that is going to uh, inflate uh, retaliation risk. So there is also, of course, real retaliation risk. That real and inflated retaliation risk uh, reduces uh, police citizen cooperation, right? Because people are going to be more hesitant to come forward. Um, and it also has that secondary effect of uh, uh, causing norms in the community to, to be perceived as less likely than they are. So there's a perception that much, uh, much fewer people in a given community uh, support cooperation than actually do, right? Uh, and that further uh, decreases police citizen cooperation. Uh, and ultimately what you get uh, is reduced police citizen cooperation, uh, which uh, reduces the deterrence uh, towards criminals to engage in further violence. And that further violence uh, continues uh, continues the cycle. So my question is like, how, how can these cycles of silence be reversed, right? So what I do is I evaluate three interventions uh, that, can, that, could potentially, uh, that could potentially do that. Um, so uh, the first intervention is uh, this notion uh, of anonymity, right? So anonymous tip lines are quite common around the world. Um, so I, I, wanted to look at the, I wanted to look at the possibility, the viability of these anonymous tip lines um, for making risk inflation less relevant, right? Because if, if uh, the police don't have the identity of a cooperator, there's no way that it can get into the hands uh, of a criminal group, right? So potentially that anonymity makes the risk inflation less, uh, less relevant. Uh, I also wanna look at norm awareness, right? So there are, there are a number of different organizations around the world that try to uh, promote awareness of cooperation norms. So, um, Audio Pizzo, for instance, in Italy might be one of these organizations that in part does this. A uh, number of neighborhood watch organizations here in the United States, Block Watch, Community Watch uh, organizations do that. So I wanted to look at whether or not uh, such normal awareness actually can help increase uh, police citizen cooperation. Uh, then I finally also look at whether or not exposing uh, citizens to officers of the same race uh, can boost trust in the police and that increased trust in the police then in turn could, uh, could uh, increase cooperation, right? So uh, anonymity, uh, norm awareness, uh, and then exposure to officers of the same race are the, are the three primary interventions that I, that I look at in this study. Um, so the method here uh, is a survey in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and the survey was conducted in about 
30 communities in the uh, in the city. Um, and I'm focusing on the communities with the highest uh, the highest homicide rates using homicide rates here as a proxy for for gang violence. Um, and I surveyed 650 residents is primarily internet based. Um, and I also uh, engaged in a number of interviews about 60 interviews and then a number of uh, ride alongs uh, with police officers to, to combine uh, combine the survey results with qualitative data just to validate and contextualize uh, contextualize those findings. Um, so what happens in the survey experiment is that respondents are going to watch a fictional news report. So I worked with a local film production company to create fictional news reports. Um, and uh, those reports have a number of experimental variations that are designed to test those various uh, interventions that I, that, I, that I talked about, right? Um, and so after the respondents watch these news reports, uh, the news report that's delivered to them, then they indicate, okay, if I if they were a witness on the scene, how much, if any, information do they think they would provide uh, to the to the police? So here you can see uh, some of the news reports uh, with the treatment and control groups uh, put side by side, right? So um, the the news reports uh, are basically the same in in almost all respects, except for the differences with, with respect to the intervention, right? So this is just part of the opening uh, opening scene of the report. Uh, you can see uh, this is just a, a typical news report, tried to make it as realistic as possible, but some respondents received a report where you had officers who were African-American, whereas other respondents had uh, officers who were white, right? Um, and then there's other versions of the report in which um, the officers were advertising or encouraging residents to call an anonymous tip line, whereas the officers in, in the control condition were saying, you know, call just their standard tip line that isn't anonymous. Um, and then for this cooperation awareness, um, the reports also interviewed a community leader uh, where the shooting took place. Um, and in the treatment condition here for cooperation awareness, the community leader emphasizes that a lot of people generally step up, they they communicate with the police, they tell the police what they saw, whereas in the con control con control condition, they generally do not uh, do not do that. Uh, so these are the results. Um, uh, when respondents or when the police commander emphasized the anonymity of a uh, emphasize the anonymity of the tip line, uh, respondents or residents provided 22% more information than they did in the condition com compared to the condition where they did not emphasize uh, the anonymity of the tip line. Um, when the uh, community leader emphasized that many others in the community come forward, uh, respondents shared about 23% more information than they did in the condition where the community leader said, you know, very few people come forward. Uh, and when uh, the officer was the same race, it didn't seem to make a difference, right? So when uh, when uh, when residents were exposed to the condition in their in the uh, in the report, having the officer as the same race as them, uh, it didn't really change the amount of information that uh, they were willing they were willing to share. So as I said, this was done in the context of Baltimore, Maryland, which is a context with high state capacity, right? And a lot of times these, this research is done 
in, in context with very high state capacity, perhaps the United States, perhaps the UK, and then just kind of assume to apply in context where there is less state capacity, right? Um, so what I wanted to do in this to, to, to kind of avoid this, uh, avoid this pitfall is I would just do the, do the experiment in the context of Baltimore, uh, but also do it uh, in a low state capacity context uh, in, in, in Lagos, uh, Nigeria is, was, is where, it, where it was done. Um, so in Lagos, uh, you have a similar problem in the marketplace, uh, so-called area boy crews uh, engage in violence and extortion of shopkeepers uh, and the police uh, really struggled to gain cooperation from citizens. Uh, this is certainly in part due to uh, corruption issues with police legitimacy. Um, and uh, in addition to that, you also have, I, I would say this cycle of silence dynamics uh, plays out there just as it does in Baltimore and, and, and elsewhere. Andrew, we'll have to start wrapping up, sorry. Two minutes. Um, oh, I, am I at time? Yeah, right. you can take another oh. minute to wrap up, thank you. Okay, sure, thanks. Um, so anyway, so I did a similar experiment in that context of Lagos uh, and the results were, were, were relatively uh, uh, similar, right? Um, so I'm just gonna go ahead and uh, leave it at that. I'm happy to talk more uh, in the Q&A uh, and also please feel free to reach out to me directly if uh, anybody has uh, questions for me. Um, all right, so thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. That was, uh, that was really exciting. I mean, showing the, I would say the ecosystem or the connection of crime, awareness, social behavior and perception. Uh, I think that's a really exciting topic and uh, Please, if anyone has questions, reach out. Please put them in the chat. Andrew will be glad to answer the questions. We'll take a Q&A at the end of the session. And thank you again, Andrew. That was uh, fascinating. Um, moving on, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to invite uh, 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 Judy-Anne and uh, Lynn to the stage. And uh, the floor is yours. So uh, good afternoon or good morning, good evening, everybody. Um, I feel really privileged in sharing some of my research that I've done over the last six years with you here today. Uh, I think it's safe to say that gangsterism is an extremely complex and also contextual phenomenon. Uh, and that five minutes in my case is not nearly enough for any of us to accurately represent the reality of it. Um, but today I hope to share something of what I have learned through my research in specifically narrative criminology. Uh, in engaging with so many individuals' stories over the last years, uh, gangsters and ex-gangsters alike, um, I have continuously been confronted with the way in which for the individual, his or her lived experience of gangsterism is not one of social disorganization or criminal enterprise, but of the search for belonging, purpose, and identity in a world, as we all know, filled with many types of adversity. If we look at this through the well-known um, problem dream model, we see that a phenomenon such as gangsterism can have a multitude of root causes. Uh, in this example, I have focused on the causes often found in the South African context of gangsterism. Uh, causes such as structural inequality, multidimensional poverty, 
high exposure to violence, individual and collective trauma, etc. We see here that such root causes or adversities can, amongst other things, give rise to the effect of gangsterism. But more specifically, the move from root causes to gangsterism is found to often happen within the context of a core search for belonging, identity, and purpose. Another way of looking at this is by understanding that adversity can have a completely different effect on the individual, depending on whether or not such adversity was experienced with or without a true sense of belonging, purpose, and identity. In my research, these three things prove to be very essential in respondents' life stories. And I use the term a true sense here because the life stories often revealed a psychological tension during the individual's gang involvement. With this, I mean to say that even though they might have experienced some form of identity, purpose, and belonging in these settings, they often described it as being accompanied by a feeling that they were living a dangerous lie, that they were suppressing their true identity, that their belonging was somehow false or conditional, etc. Because belonging, purpose, and identity are so fundamental to the human experience, of ways in which each of us will strive to define these aspects for ourselves, including through gangsterism. So this question I want to address today is not, is there belonging, purpose, and identity, but rather, where and how is it being nurtured, cared for, or encouraged? In my research on South African gangsterism, um, Many life stories affirm that in this country, in our country, in my country, with its absolutely debilitating structural inequality and in the grips of very complex intergenerational trauma, both on an individual and a collective level, gangsterism is often the dominant subcultural life choice placed before the individual, by which means they are invited to fight for a sense of self-worth agency, unity, belonging, to somehow make sense of what else simply remains powerlessness. As one respondent in my study shared, I witnessed a lot of abuse in my household, where my dad would hit my mom for no reason and put his hands on her and take an ax and beat her with the ax, breaking her ribs, times when he would come home from work under the influence of alcohol, still with his safety boots on, and he would just pull her to the ground for no reason and kick her and go crazy. Many times I was watching this happen and I couldn't do anything about it. I am young, I am a child, I can't do anything. I don't understand what is happening. Um, we, we see so many themes here already, uh, and I wish I had more time. But just to name a few, uh, abuse, exposure to extreme violence as a child, substance abuse, feelings of powerlessness, senselessness. And in this respondent's case, as is the case with so many others, gangsterism culturally and in many ways strategically and deliberately through recruitment methods provided him with an out, with an answer, with security with a way to make his anger and his hurt count for something. 
because, as another respondent shared, in these impoverished townships where the social diffusion of violence and violence-related trauma persists alongside all else of life's hardships, they come to believe that this is the place of rejection, the place everybody wants to get out of. Here you learn to be the attacker and not the prey. Now the big question sometimes for many, what about law and order in the fight against crime? Um, I would like to share another quote with you from one of my respondents, Mario, who for many years was a notorious gangster with a brutal history of violence and murder. Uh, he has since for many years now desisted from all criminal activity and actually plays a key role in supporting others, especially young people, uh, who find themselves in the grips of the same predicaments he did. Um, but in one of his interviews, he said, uh, during his time in gangsterism, I had no respect for society. I had no respect for life. I had no respect for the law or anything. Because in gangsterism, I was taught how to break all the rules. And therefore, I had no feelings for other people. I was running away from town to town and I thought the police will never catch me. And in every place I came, my lifestyle of crime and of violence just started to escalate. Now, as a legal scholar myself, I'm the last person to underestimate the power of the law. But I can also tell you, it hasn't ever been, or will it ever be enough? When we start talking about law and order, we often only see the perpetrator the criminal other, undeserving of our mercy. But who are they? What are their stories? And how did they get there? This is um, a photo of Mario as a child, which I share here with his permission. To such a great and underestimated extent, when we speak about gangsterism, and when we think we're speaking about the adult or the teenager with a gun in his hand and murder on his mind, we forget that we're also talking about this boy, the boy who only saw one way out, who believed that his survival and his story could only achieve meaning through what gangsterism offered him at the time. The boy who only had one type of role model for a success story. What if he knew then what he knows today? We must commit ourselves to the creation of alternative, healthy spaces of belonging, identity, and purpose, in which people are allowed to claim agency, to be part of community, and to strive for meaning and purpose in their lives, not only in the context leading up to criminal involvement, but also thereafter when we talk uh, about the need for desistance from crime, because we cannot expect people to leave their criminal worlds behind if we don't give them a chance to recreate an alternative world for themselves. Thank you very much, Lynn. Uh, well, I think that was a very, very powerful presentation. Uh, gave us a lot of, uh, everyone, a lot of time to think. And I think the main message bringing across is always look at the, the root causes and look at the person behind that picture. I mean, there is a story we have to find the root causes of the crime. And uh, I'm sure you're doing a great job with the social workers and the people in the correction centers and jails. And I think uh, your message was definitely brought strong and very powerful. 
And I want to thank you personally for that presentation. Thank you. Um, pleasure. Um, next, uh, next up, we have uh, Julianne. And the stage is yours, uh, Julianne. Again, uh, great to have you aboard. Okay, so um, thank you, Lynn, for that. So from what Lena said, it is clear that the need for alternative structures of belonging um, exist and, and, and that those structures are crucial. And at MathMoms, the organization where I work, our question is whether creating those structures early in a child's life can catch them before they uh, become involved in gangsterism or in criminal activities. So a couple of years ago in our program, um, one of the boys said the following. He said, when I hold a gun, I don't feel so powerless. I feel like I am somebody. He was 12 years old. And we know that children, especially boys, are groomed from a very young age, from the research shows seven, eight, nine years old, to join the gangs in their communities. And many children, like this boy, feel like nobodies for whom the gangs provide the only gateway to become somebodies. What Math Moms does is to show a different way for every child to discover that they are indeed a somebody. We address many of the root causes of crime and violence in our communities, multidimensional poverty, the crises in our education systems, um, a culture of violence, and unaddressed individual, communal, and historical trauma. Math Moms employs and trains previously unemployed women and youth to become mathematics tutors to foundation phase learners in their communities. We have three overarching aims, improving academic results, creating economic opportunities for unemployed adults, and creating safe spaces with healthy, continuous intergenerational relationships in the hopes of building resilient communities. We achieve these aims by training and upskilling adults and mostly women by equipping them as broadly as possible so that they can, they can transmit academic and life skills to learners in their communities by giving the average foundation phase learner a solid basis in mathematics, literacy and study techniques where the school's school system often fails them, by improving the self-esteem of participants, by improving parental involvement in schools, by nurturing intergenerational relationships, by creating safe spaces through a trauma-informed approach in which adults and learners can find healing, learning and connection. At the heart of our program lies the knowledge that if we do not break through the trauma in people's lives and in our communities, learning and growth cannot effectively take place and vulnerability to organized crime, to gangsterism, to extortion will remain. We therefore aim to nurture resilience in individuals and communities by establishing what we call our triangles of trust. Our understanding of the impact of trauma and the importance of relationships is informed by attachment theory. Attachment is one of our first lessons in the home. A caregiver's attachment with a child in their early years can profoundly shape the child's future relationships and also the child's ability to deal with uncertainties, to face challenges and to recognize opportunities. Trauma in caregivers can block attachment and lead to trauma in children, a cycle that is hard but not impossible to break out of. Through our program, we want to ensure that children are able to form positive attachments with caring adults in their communities 
as a stable and committed relationship with a supportive adult is crucial for developing resilience as a child. To do that, we provide adult participants with tools, knowledge and support to start them on the path to healing, to ensure that they are emotionally grounded before they engage with learners. We also incorporate mindfulness exercises in our academic interventions to ensure that learners feel secure in our classrooms. Our teaching approach is playful and paired with the individual attention that learners receive, this helps them to form relationship with the math moms. The three sides of our triangle, which you can see on the slide, correspond to the three factors Lynn and I suggest can contribute to resilience against organized crime. Through relationship building, we nurture a sense of belonging and community. Through nurturing love or mothering love, um, attachments are formed and trauma is addressed, enabling the discovery of individual agency and identity. Through skills transfer, in our training with the women and in our classes with the learners, we lead them on the road to discovering their purpose and provide the tools and experience to realize that purpose. Many participants in our program, and you can see the size of our operations there, have gone on to find permanent employment or enrolled in tertiary studies, mostly to become social workers or teachers. One young intern recently said to me that she never knew that she was good with children before joining Math Moms, and now she's preparing to qualify as a teacher. One of our Math Moms, who I think is in the audience, self-identified at the start of her journey as a couch potato, and now she's a mentor in our program, she's active in her community and at her local school. Our program is too young to say whether it has definitively prevented anyone from joining gangs and determining that is not really part of our purpose. Our purpose is to create structures of belonging in communities and especially around vulnerable children. We speak of placing learners in ICU or in intensive care, ICU. They not only receive an education but also recognition, a sense of agency and confidence in their own abilities. The chances of staying in school or finding employment or furthering their studies or their education is improved and they are recognized as somebodies who can positively contribute to their community and their country. And they leave their program, perhaps most importantly, with the knowledge that there is someone, in fact a whole network of adults in their community who cares for them, to whom they can always stand in need and who will act as a safety net should they form. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Judy. That was a, a really great presentation carrying on the, the former presentation about the causes. I mean, you really emphasize, I would say, the practical tools that you're, tools that you're providing, that society can provide. And I think the message that you really brought, brought along was that the youngsters, they're not transparent. You have to show them that they're not transparent that they really belong to something, someone, some society, that they have a purpose in life and they have identity. And by the way, those three uh, creators that you uh, underlined, or uh, I would say, or you can take them through to life, to any uh, any place of work or any uh, any organization. And uh, I want to thank you for that. It was, uh, it was a fascinating uh, presentation. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. So we're going to move on, uh, last but not uh, least, on the presentation side. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Amir Rustani, 
And Amir, the stage is yours. Thank you very much. I hope you can hear me. Yeah, okay. we can hear you. Ah, great. Thank you. And uh, thank you to all the panelists. It was great presentations. And, 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 and thank you, Paul, for moderating the, the session. Uh, it's evening here in Sweden. It's cold and it's dark. So uh, I'm a little bit jealous for those that are in other warmer places like South Africa. Um, so I'm going to present a paper that we have submitted with my dear colleague, Hanan Mondani, uh, with the title of Criminal Nomads, the role of multiple affiliations in the network of criminal collaboration between Hells Angels, MC and Bandidos. And giving you a background of, the, of this paper is that it started with our interest of studying the nexus, the crime terror nexus. As you may know, there are uh, a long debate, uh, both academic, academic debate, but also in, in, in the policy field, that is there a, a nexus between terrorism and crime? Is there a nexus between violent extremism and organized crime? And you could say that there are two sides. One side that I'm uh, quoting here, Bruce Hoffman, saying that you should distinguish between terrorists and ordinary criminals because they are driven by different motives. Uh, terrorists are driven by uh, political motives and organized crime, ordinary criminals are uh, driven by material gain. And then you have the other side of the dimension or spectra of Letzia, for example, here illustrated by a quote from Letzia Pauli, which she argues that there are structural and organizational similarities between organized crime, youth gangs, and terrorist groups. Uh, so she's saying that the thirst for power, power, especially local power, is probably always a more important driving force than the mere desire for wealth. So this has been ongoing debate for at least, I would say, 25 years. And <clears throat> we decided maybe we should, we have done studies on this in a Swedish context. We find, uh, uh, um, I would say, a quite clear nexus between violent extremism and organized crime in Sweden. But we were interested to test this in, in a new setting. So we try to, in this study, testing or investigating the nexus in within organized crime. We somehow believe that by dissecting the nexus in a criminal antagonistic setting, we can contribute to the field of crime terror nexus. So we decide to see, to investigate, is there a nexus between two old folks, uh, bandidos uh, and Hells Angels that for decades have been in, 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 in conflict, both internationally, but especially in the Nordic context. Uh, we had between 1994 and 1997, the great Nordic biker war uh, with you know, a, a lot of casualties and, and, and deadly casualties um, between the Hells Angels and Bandidos. So we try to say, okay, can we find a nexus in between this, this group and what can uh, the, the results uh, um, uh, show us or give us more knowledge about nexus in general? So the aim of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of this study is to explore if and how criminal collaboration exists between two biker clubs or outdoor motorcycle gangs. Um, that 
we can assume they lack interest in collaborating with each other because they are rivals. We, we seek to study, uh, seek to answer the, the following research question. Is there a direct collaboration in crime between members of two historical foes, foes, Alessandros and Bandidos? If yes, is there a specific group of individuals who act as facilitators in connecting different facets of Helsinki's and bandidos? And what are the profiles of these individuals? In this study, uh, we use uh, uh, a compilation of governmental registry. Basically, we have gained um, um, a register from the Swedish Law Enforcement Agency, uh, the Swedish police, where they have identified members in different uh, organized crime groups, such as OMCGs. And we use uh, uh, crime data from the Swedish um, Agency for Crime Prevention, BRO, which is the agency in Sweden responsible for, responsible for gathering um, data on, on crime. So, and as a method, we are using social network analysis. So basically here, uh, collaboration in crime, let me explain like this. If we have one case, there where we can find two individuals that have been uh, suspected for, uh, for the same crime in the same case, we are using that as a proxy as collaboration. So if, for example, me and Paul, we, we are suspected of doing a robbery together, we have a link between us. And that becomes a, a, a collaboration between me and Paul. So, and if Paul belongs to Hells Angels and I belong to Bandidos, then we have a collaboration between two, two individuals with different um, organizational backgrounds or entities. So this is how we try to measure collaboration between, uh, between uh, members of Hells Angels and Bandidos. But within the data, we have also individuals that the police have labeled as multiple, with multiple affiliation. So they are both members of Hells Angels and Bandidos. And the question is how? And the simple answer to that is we at the moment don't know. It could be that people, there are individuals that have changed affiliation, but it can also be that there are people who are moving between the two organizations. And that because of that, it has been difficult to, to categorize them as only with one membership. So we have three categories in this study, full members of Hells Angels, full member of Bandidos, and individuals that are with, have multiple affiliation. What we find in this, uh, in, in this analysis, which is that we did, when we look at full members of the two organizations, the blue one is, uh, uh, if I remember uh, Bandidos, and the red one is, uh, to be honest, I don't remember the color here. Uh, but uh, this is only every dot is full member and you see the link is collaboration in crime. When we are looking at uh, uh, full members, we don't see a collaboration, at least not collaboration in, in, in more, ex you know, in, in, uh, in extensive collaboration. In few cases we find here, for example, here we can find a little bit of collaboration between very few individuals, but we don't find a structural collaboration between full members of Los Angeles and Mandidos. 
when we go further and add the, the, the nodes with multiple affiliation, suddenly an interesting pattern is merged. And we see a huge collaboration, collaboration between, between the, these two organizations with the multiple affiliators as bridges, brokers. For example, if I, we color the one that are linked, we will gain this kind, this, this picture. So uh, adding individuals with more than one affiliation with Helsinki's and Bandidos creates a giant component. So this gives us one clue that maybe we don't have, uh, we don't find if we, you, you know, going back to the, the crime terror nexus uh, uh, question, uh, maybe you don't find a clear uh, collaboration between uh, 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 terror organization and organized crime. However, we find people who are moving between different settings. It could be within organized crime. They are moving between, collaborating between, in this case, two organizations that ha are, have a historical uh, you know, hostilities between between them, uh, but still with the multiple affiliated, they are uh, having a very small step in between them, so let's say. So basically, very short about the conclusion. Uh, uh, so in this study, we investigated the criminal collaboration between the two OMCGs in Sweden. The role of the members of Helsingis and Bandidos regarding internal and external collaboration. I've only shown you the external collaboration in crime. Our results show that these two antagonistic OMG, OMG, OM, OMCGs, they uh, have more criminal collaboration that would be expected considering their history of rivalry. We also observe significant differences between members with only one gang membership and those with multiple gang membership. As an example, the individuals with multiple membership so-called criminal nomads, because they are like nomads that are moving around between different gangs, have distinctive network brokerage role facilitating collaboration between these, between the two rivals. So we hope this gives us another clue, another dimension in the debate on crime terror nexus saying that, okay, when we are investigating the, the nexus between organized crime and terrorism, maybe we need to look closer to who are, which individuals who are creating the nexus between the two, the two organization or two milieus. Uh, I think I am done. And Paul, I, I don't think okay. I, yeah. Yeah, well, that brings My us down out. to the time. Yeah, well, great. first of all, thank you. Thank you, Amir. I mean, that was a great, uh, I think, a wrap-up session. First of all, for giving the term Nexus that we haven't we haven't heard about in a, in a while. And what's interesting, I think, is the perception of most of us of that gangs are working separately. There's no connection between the gangs and the, the collaboration between them. Is it a common enemy, common goals? Is it power conflicts? Yeah. And I think, you know, those are questions that uh, I, that interest me. And I would also be interested if it's the same pattern in terror groups or terror groups also, you know, working between ourselves on the same model that you showed us. So it definitely opens uh, very wide horizons for for different uh, vectors. So uh, 
I can, I'm sure there'll be questions about that in the Q&A session. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we are, we have time and we're coming to the Q&A uh, Q uh, uh, session and uh, the, the questions are starting to, starting to come in. And there are questions coming in and I would like to address the first question to uh, Judy Ann. Uh, so Judy Ann, if you can open your camera. Um, the question that came in is, uh, why did your program choose to focus on mathematics, education, and on mothers, and not fathers, or, or only mothers? And how, how uh, do you see this contributing to resilience against the gang, uh, gangsterism? So I'll, I'll start with the, with the last bit. So like I said in my presentation, um, there's this almost crisis of belonging and of um, knowing for children what to do with their future. As Lynn said, for many, it feels as if the gangs, especially I think for young boys, as if the gangs are the only options. We decided to focus on mathematics um, because maths is seen as a difficult subject. So if you can master mathematics, you're clever and you are capable. So to foster, on the one hand, a sense of agency and um, trust in their thinking and their problem-solving abilities in the children, but also because mathematics opens doors to so many career paths um, that remain close to many children in South Africa because the the state of mathematics education in, in South Africa is really frightening. Um, so that's why we chose mathematics, but maths for us really, or our, our academic program really is a vehicle to, to arrive at belonging and nurturing. We chose mothers because we want to empower women, um, many women in South Africa. If you only do a quick Google of gender-based violence statistics, we just had a 16-day campaign um, nationally against that. Women need empowerment. And we know if you invest in women, they reinvest in their communities. If you invest in women, they are more resilient against um, domestic violence. And many of the homes in our communities, um, the fathers are absent for a variety of reasons. So the mothers are there, the women are there, but we don't only have mothers or women. So we see this nurturing love obviously as something that anyone can have. And we have men in our program. We have young men who serve as role models um, through our internship program. So it's really this idea of nurturing love and building confidence in children so that they are more resilient in themselves and so that they see a, a different future. Thank you. Thank you very much for that comprehensive uh, answer, uh, Judy, Judy Ann. Thank you. Um, the next question is for you, uh, Andrew, Dr. Miller. I don't know if you could see the question in the chat. If not, I will, uh, I will read it out. Uh, and the question is by uh, Martin Delia. Uh, Dr. Miller addresses trust in police only with regards to the same race police officers, which doesn't seem to have an impact. How does this trust in police relate to wider trust in society and social structures or relating to, Lynn, to Lynn's presentation, could gang membership and refusal to be a witness to the police share some root causes? So uh, Andrew, I think you should take the, the first part of the question and Lynn, if you have anything to add in, at the end, we'll be glad. Yeah, great. I think it's a, it's a really, really good question. 
Um, so if I'm interpreting it correctly, it's it's kind of getting at this issue of like, all right, if you have a community with high levels of interpersonal trust among those in the community, um, does that mean that individuals in that community are more inclined to trust the police, right? Um, and the frank answer is, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if there's been if there's been work on that. If there hasn't been, I think it would definitely be uh, valuable to do. Um, what I would say is that it probably depends on a number of factors. And one of those factors is how embedded the police are within the community that they're operating in. Um, so in a place like Baltimore, where I conducted much of this research, uh, same with Lagos, uh, the police are not particularly well embedded into the community. So in Baltimore, they don't live in the city for the most part. They come from different states in, in some contexts. So if individuals in that community have higher levels of interpersonal trust among others, it probably wouldn't necessarily translate into higher trust of the police because the police aren't seen as being part of the community itself. So uh, that interpersonal trust would, would not necessarily translate. Um, but if you do have a context where you have police officers who are very much embedded in the community and there is higher interpersonal trust in, the, in that community, then I could see it having, uh, having an effect and, and boosting trust uh, in some way, but short answer is, I don't think we know, um, but it would certainly be worth finding out. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Um, Lynn, would you, do you have anything to add on this uh, topic or the question? You're on mute, Lynn. Uh, this is a word that, you know, we COVID has brought us, you're on mute. But <laughs> um, I think as, as Andrew had said, it's a, it's a very good question and a very beautiful, complicated question because um, there's often, if I speak now specifically for the case in South Africa, we see these opposing forces between community and the state. Um, they are enemies of each other. There are these power dynamics continuously at play. Um, and these power dynamics also become politicized in like... Um, before voting starts, you know, the political parties will talk a lot about extreme gangsterism and call up the community to, to speak out against crime. And But there's no foundation for calling the community up because there's no trust between the state and, uh, and its people. So that's a massive problem. Um, uh, certainly um, um, a distrust um, in these structures, but also um, it is not so easy to speak up on crime. Um, we heard about these cycles of, of silence, you know, and um, I think politically you can often see people say, well, somebody must know who these people are. It's someone's brother, it's someone's father, it's someone's mother doing these things but they don't realize the other side of that. It is exactly that. It's someone's brother, it's someone's mother, it's someone's father. And to speak up against your family, to speak up about things so complex where your own well-being, your own home is involved, um, that's not an easy thing to ask. And I think we can put ourselves in that position as well. I mean, standing up uh, in the name of secrecy sometimes to protect our loved ones, even from the most small sin. Um, it's not an easy thing to ask. So I think there are, um, those are some of my insights to the question. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ellen. Thank you. 
Um, Amir, there's a question uh, coming to your uh, to your end in uh, Sweden. So, um, if you could, um, the question is: uh, When you conducted your uh, research, um, were the were you looking at the field of cooperation, uh, the cause of cooperation, or just the the link analysis between the gangs? This is this study is a part of a larger project that we look and try to to map out uh, the basic uh, dimension of organized crime in Sweden and, and, and also violent extremists. But I will say uh, uh, our interest from the beginning was uh, the organizational dimension, but in this case is more about co co collaboration between different groups and between different individuals. We use social network analysis as a tool. So, and we do other stuff like qualitative uh, uh, part to, to, to map out the collaboration. But I would say collaboration is the main purpose. I see. Um, carrying on that, uh, that line that you uh, emphasized, another question, I'm just gonna uh, take it with you, with you and carry it on. Um, were there any cases that a new gang was formed because of the linkage or the co collaboration between two gangs, or did each of them keep their organic uh, identity? We have, in this case, only investigated or studied the collaboration between these two distinct gangs. But I forget to mention during my presentation because when we did, uh, when we looked at the nexus between violent Islamic extremism and organized crime, we find different clusters of nexus. And when we look closer to that, we suddenly find there are members of bikers, members of street gangs, members of a different kind of crime groups. So that was, I think, where we started to ask ourselves, is this something about nexus or nomads? because suddenly you find clusters of individuals with different affiliation to different types of groups. Uh, but we haven't done more, you know, we're still in this case, only studying uh, on the milieu level between violent uh, Islamic extremism and organized crime. And in this case, between Hells Angels and Mandios. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the next question uh, that's coming, it's for, uh, for you, Julianne. Um, the question is, uh, what breakthroughs have you seen in people's lives in the communities following your interventions? So, um, like I said, we don't measure for, you know, we don't follow the children to see whether they have gangs. But we have, based on feedback and based on testing that we've done, seen um, significant academic improvements at the schools where we have our interventions, not only um, with the children in our program, but but broader um, in in their whole classes. We only take a couple of children from each class. Um, but I think our biggest breakthrough is in the lives of the women and the interns in our program. So we see the program as a stepping stone, not as a permanent place of employment. And so many of them have um, found employment and permanent employment and are now breadwinners in their homes. Um, almost 20 of them this year from a relatively small group, um, almost 20 of them enrolled for tertiary studies, which given their economic position is not that easy to do. So these we really see as breakthroughs of people 
getting opportunities, being able to care for their families. And throughout COVID we, um, and, and the effects of the lockdown, we've really seen a difference in the children who are in our program, um, both emotionally and academically, and the children who are not. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Judy. Um, another question is coming uh, your way, uh, Andrew. Um, the question is, uh, you were speaking about the perception of the public, if it's uh, the race of the officer and so on. Um, was there any relation to the type of crime? Did this affect the perception of the social behavior of the public? If it was a, a very violent crime or it was just a car accident? Or, I mean, did you focus on the type of crime in your, uh, in your studies? Uh, so I didn't do any variation on type of crime, say from low level crime versus uh, like, let's say violent crime, something like that. I focus just primarily on violent crime because um, I think, you know, normatively from a normative perspective, I think there, um, that's particularly problematic uh, issue with uh, criminal group presence in, in, in communities. Um, so uh, I didn't um, capture anything empirically, any sort of variation on, on how that changes when it comes to, uh, comes to the, 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 the level of crime. I see. Um... Thank you for that. Maybe it's, uh, I mean, something to think about in the next uh, researchers in, uh, uh, in in your in your cases. Um, we have a question for coming your way, uh, Lynn. Um, you, you spoke about a lot about, I would say, the the, you know, the social causes, the root causes, the adversity. Um, what were in the root causes? Were there any one that any root causes that really stood out that uh, you could say that brought people to violence, to, to gangs, to crime more than others. I mean, on all the all the ones that you uh, put out in your presentation. Uh, Lynn, you're on mute again. Sorry. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, there there was. Um, I, I, it was a. I didn't have time to, to go into this distinction, but I think it's important for people to understand that uh, all of us experience adversity. And I mean, some obviously a lot more than others, um, but adversity does not have to lead to trauma. Often adversity without those three things I spoke about, without some way of meaning making um, leads to trauma. Um, and it is often this, thick layer of trauma that becomes the main cause um, for where the individual ends up with in this state of almost social and, and private decay. Um, and in a country like South Africa, the, the trauma, like Judy has also mentioned, is, is a multi-level trauma. Uh, it is not only an historical political trauma that, that collective groups have experienced through years of oppression, neglect, uh, inequality, but also intergenerational trauma, uh, trauma from grandparents to kids to their grandchildren, um, not only relating to, for example, something uh, genetic like alcohol abuse, but also the way in which a parent who is traumatized and has not had the ability to deal with that trauma, the way in which such a parent parents a child 
um, is often traumatizing for that child, the way in which uh, the, the adult projects um, pain and suffering uh, and oppression onto that child because of their own denial. Um, so that in itself becomes this hard shell um, that leads to, uh, often we see this trauma leading to circumstances that are just fit for the social diffusion of violence. Because the bigger the trauma, the more hardened the individual becomes, the less opportunity they have to engage with their own, own trauma, uh, the often we see the more violent even their crimes become um, because they, they don't have the ability to, to access their own vulnerability. In a sense, they become, like many of my responses also said, like um, no, having no respect for life, having no respect for people. Having, and, and in that case, that moral consciousness is... Uh, is non-existent and their crimes can just escalate to, to sometimes an inhuman extent um, that as a healthy human being you would um, you would have a hard time sleeping at night knowing uh, what happens uh, behind closed doors. Thank you. Thank you for that, Lynn. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, we have 10 minutes left, so I'd like to give the panelists the opportunity to uh, for closing remarks or closing statements or words and, uh, you know, even give us a vision for next year on what they're going to focus on and what they're going to speak about in the next the next uh, conference where we're going to meet together. Um, so, uh, Amir, if you'd like to start, you were last for the presentation, so I'll give you the honor of speaking first. Stage is yours. Each one, just a minute to each so we can, you know, give each other time. You give me all the difficult tasks. Being first out with this question is, is difficult. Uh, I'm just happy to be here and, and thank you for, you know, great presentations that uh, and next year, who knows? Well, uh, well, Amir, there is a question, sorry, came in very fast for you, so uh, I can't get away. I'm going to, it's, it, I actually brought this topic up also. Uh, do you see similarities between organized crime, terrorism, in reasons why people join in their personal life stories and so yeah. on? Uh, especially in Sweden, the Swedish context, yes, we see similarities. As, uh, and I will say also the latest research on when it comes to violent extremists, they see that they, say, they see also some similarities because they are coming from the same, um, same pools. They are coming from vulnerable areas. They are coming from same backgrounds. Um, and we have done a couple of um, interviews with both extremism gang members, but we, in, in one study that is, was published, for two, well, I think last year, we saw similarities. We, 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 we did interview between people who joined both far right and left and, and violent uh, Islamic extreme, extremists. We, we saw a lot of similarities when regarding about network links, you know, the social bonds, who they were friends with, uh, who invited them in, into the milieu. That was, that was one of the key causes. So yes, we see similarities, but I'm, 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 I'm also aware that there are a lot of differences between the, the, the different milieus uh, that we need to take in, into consideration. Too. So thank you. Thank you, Amir. Thank you for that. Andrew, uh, closing remarks, any visionary aspects? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thank you everybody for the 
incredible presentations. I learned a lot. Um, what I'm hoping to do, or what I'm increasingly interested in, it, it somewhat relates to Amir's work. And, you know, he's looking at the crime terror nexus. I kind of want to look at the crime state nexus. So how do state how do state entities use criminal organizations for their own means? So, uh, for instance, we see this when states are sanctioned uh, by by Western powers. Generally, um, they sometimes tap into illicit networks to rat around those sanctions. Um, sometimes uh, political parties uh, will use uh, gangs for uh, to advance their electoral uh, chances. That sort of thing. So. Um, I, I kind of want to explore that um, uh, that relationship as much as possible. If I can, I'm just going to sneak in a question for Lynch. He doesn't have to answer it, but uh, I'd just be curious. Maybe we can talk about it offline. Uh, I think the research is fascinating, and I'd be curious to hear her thoughts on like what it implies for um, like how how kind of justice uh, should be like delivered in such context. So you have this recognition of. There are structural conditions that lead individuals to engage in criminal activity. Um, so what does that mean kind of from a policy perspective? It, it really just uh, came to mind when, when during a presentation, which I thought was excellent. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you all. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Um, Julia, remarks, closing your words. Thank you, everyone. Um, I think Andrew and Amir, a lot of the things you said also echoed um, the, the realities in South Africa, and it really um, increases my confidence in humanity to know that across, across the globe there are opportunities for people to learn from each other about these things. Um, our focus in our program has always first and foremost been um, creating safe spaces and, and healing trauma and, and we are really going to invest in that next year um, going forward with the economic difficulties with the fallout from lockdowns and, and the continuing pandemic um, the the children are really suffering in our schools and they are falling more and more behind we have 10 year olds who can't write their names um, who now have to go and continue their education so our focus will be on continuing to create structures of belonging and support for those children where they can really flourish. Um, and tomorrow morning, I think Lynn can invite all of you. We, Lynn and I and some others are going to have another interesting conversation. Lynn, I don't know if you want to tell them about that. Lynn, this is your stage for the closing words because we do have four minutes left. So uh, you have okay. two, minutes, two minutes to answer. Okay, um, so anybody who wants to join, uh, just to add, uh, for tomorrow, um, session 12E, I'll be discussing some more about my research and a book I wrote. But uh, Andrew, I just wanted to tell you as well, it's a fascinating question and it gets me so excited that you ask it because I am very hopeful for what is possible within those contexts. Um, I mean, when we talk about, for example, uh, prisons in South Africa being correctional centers, it becomes sort of, it, it takes us to that point where what do we mean by correcting that behavior and correcting those patterns? Even when we talk about things like victim offender dialogue, uh, that's very, you know, what does it look like in these cases? Who is the victim? Who is the offender? We often see that 
dangerous identity switch between victim to offender. Um, so these gray areas are very complex, but they also create a lot of room for, I think, really in-depth dealing with, with these issues. Um, and I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, I'd just like to say thank you for everyone and your amazing presentations. My only hope for maybe next year is having some target group inclusion. I'd love to speak to more, you know, gangsters, have them part of the panel. You know, that's my dream. Like, I think uh, we often look at these things from outside perspective, trying to go in. Um, but sometimes while many of our goals uh, fail or, or aren't really that efficient is because we don't often include those who know that world and who could uh, work together with us. Maybe those collaborations, Amir, could go from them to us as well um, in a good sense, not to make money. But uh, yeah, so that would be my dream. Um, that's all. Amen. <laughs> I mean, thank you for that, Lynn. Um, first, I want to thank the organizers for inviting us all. It was a fascinating panel. I really enjoyed getting to know you all. And of course, uh, seeing the great presentations. I want to thank you personally, Andrew, uh, Julianne, Amir, Lynn, and Andrea behind the scenes for pushing this and generating this, uh, this panel. Um, so once again, I want to uh, hopefully we can all meet face to face in the next conference. The variants will be over, we'll be back to normal. And let's all remember, we're, there's no one transparent. Look for the root causes and uh, keep crime off the streets. So keep safe, everyone, and hope to see you all soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.